You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in fertility. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean falls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian apologetics and scholarship. And today will be no exception. We've got a really treasured guest on here today. Before getting him, I'd like to let everyone know that we're being carried now on the Universal Pentecostal Network. Some shows are going to be live, some won't be right now due to technical difficulties. This one isn't live, but thank welcome aboard to all new listeners here. And I hope you'll keep listening. Today, my guest has been foundational in the Christian apologetics ministry for quite some time. He's a he's one of the ones that I read when I was in Bible college. He's a retired senior editor and campus lecturer for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He holds a Ph.D. in English from the University of Missouri, an M.A. in English from Washington State University, and a B.A. in Chemistry in English from the University of Nebraska. He served as an officer in the U.S. He's taught English, philosophy, and theology at a number of universities. And he served as associate professor of English at Nebraska Wesleyan University and Northern Illinois University. Over the past 30 years, he has taught short courses at the University of Delaware, Regent College in Vancouver, Wheaton Graduate School, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Biola, University of the Nations, ETS, Ostrzec in Croatia, Biblical Theological Seminary, Roklar in Poland, and many other academic institutions in the U.S. and Europe. He is the author of several books, including, and this is where some of you probably recognize who I'm talking about, The Universe Next Door, Scripture Twisting, Discipleship of the Mind, Chris Christman Goes to College, Why Should Anyone Believe Anything at All, Habits of the Mind, Intellectual Life as a Christian Calling, Vaclav Havar, The Intellectual Conscience of International Politics, Naming the Elephant, Worldview as a Concept, <laughs> Learning to Pray with the Psalms, Why Good Arguments Often Fail, A Little Handbook on Humble Apologetics, Praying the Psalms of Jesus, <laughs> Deepest Differences, A Christian Atheist Dialogue with Carl Perino, and Women of the Sand Heroes, an ebook. His most recent publications are Echoes of a Voice, We Are Not Alone, and A Project Beyond Reason, Why Seeing is Believing. He's lectured on over 250 university campuses in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. During one typical academic year, he's spoken on over 20 campuses in the U.S., several in Croatia, Yugoslavia, Romania, Belgium, and the Netherlands. Most recent lectures were sponsored by his Bulgarian publisher and given in June 2012 in Sofia. He's addressed groups of undergraduates, graduate students, and faculty with talks that range from pre-evangelistic and evangelistic to academic and analytic on topics of interest to students and faculty in the arts, humanities, social sciences, natural sciences, and technical fields. And he counts among his interests the application of worldview thinking to the integration of Christian faith and the academic disciplines, the critiques of worldview analysis as a major form of Christian critical thought, and of understanding modern ancient cultures, and the nature of signals of transcendence in their relation to Christian life, especially of projects. Whew! That's a mouthful. 
All this is to welcome my guest, Dr. James Sire. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Well, I'm glad to be with you. Uh, I must be old. Yeah. <laughs> so anyone can do that if they get to be 80, get to be 80 or it's about two weeks, 81. Mm, well, happy birthday in advance. You've been in this field for quite some time. Has it been incredible to see the rise of interest in Christian apologetics? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think in a way, I asked my first apologetics question when I was about the seventh grade, eighth grade, somewhere along in there. Mm-hmm. What I asked was essentially the question about predestination and free will. Right. And the answer I got, just as good now as it was then, I don't remember what it was, but I've never received an answer that I satisfied any one of my questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when I was in Bible college, we were assigned to read your book, The Universe Next Door, in studying worldviews. And one time my professor of preaching recommended I go for a book called Scripture Twisting. Not sure if that was a compliment or not, considering I just got done giving a message, but I hope I hadn't twisted things too badly. But I read both of those, and I did go through your book also, Why Should Anyone Believe Anything at All? And recently I've gone through your latest three books. One of them came from IVP, and two of them came from you personally, and I thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. And really, again, I... Well, I can't give you another one. I don't expect to write anymore. Mm. I, I, think, uh, I think my publisher thinks I've done my swan song, and I'll be quite happy with that. Mm. Well, the first book we're going to be talking about, because most listeners will know, I usually can ask the question of how did you get to be doing what you're doing today, but that's what your first book is about, Rim of the Sand Hills. Now, some people might be wondering about that title. What does that mean, Rim of the Sand Hills? Actually, it's a title I stole from a book that was written in about 1939. It's a book about the uh, an area just outside this huge... 19,300-acre uh, area of not sand and not just dunes, but sand dunes covered with uh, rich, lush grass that makes wonderful ranch land. It's a beautiful place. Nebraska doesn't have a lot geologically to brag about, but it can certainly brag about those sand hills. Uh, the river of sand hills is, of course, just outside the edge of that on the ordinary sort of lowest that you find in Iowa and so forth. Mm-hmm. But so I lived out there, but I loved the sand hills. They were a mythological place for me. Uh, and then I was in, when I was in college, I worked out there in the summer. I could make twice as much in the sand hills during haying season as I could make at home. Mm-hmm. But and doing the same kind of work. Okay. Now that kind of work, when you were growing up, that consisted pretty much of farm work, didn't it? Farm work and, uh, and ranching work, yes. What would a typical day on the sand hills doing that kind of work consist of? Well, in the, in the summer, which is the only time I actually was in the sand hills, you wait until the grass is ready, at least I didn't get employed, until the grass is ready to be mowed and put in the windrows and swept and stacked and stacked. So a morning for me was on a tractor uh, all the way from... Uh, the dew would get off the grass, maybe 7, 8 o'clock, 
And then I would go till 7, 8 o'clock sometimes in the evening, uh, because the, obviously there's no do that early in the evening. Uh, so I would be driving a tractor with a 7-foot power mower, mowing all day, all day, all day with a break for lunch. And the break was usually in the field with that something that the uh, farmer's wife had brought out or something that was uh, maybe we would get together for a for a time with the other workers in the field. But I was basically a, 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 a mower and a raker. Mm -hmm. uh, I did I wanted to stay out of a stack like haystack as a stacker because uh, I had hay fever and that was no place to be. Now you grew up in a Christian home also, right? I did. Mm -hmm. Okay, what was what was it like growing up in a Christian home? How how was Christianity treated in your house? Well, we lived on a ranch, a, a farm on a ranch, small farm on a ranch, just outside the Sand Hills themselves, on Eagle Creek. And uh, as far as the Christianity was concerned, we were too far away to attend the church, excepting in the summers when we attended a a church that met in a schoolhouse about six miles from our from our ranch. Uh, the Christianity came to me primarily through my, my mother, who taught us uh, Presbyterian Sunday school lessons that she got from her brother, mm -hmm. and from the radio. Listened mm -hmm. to the fuller hour uh, on the radio, and uh, I listened to the Lutheran hour. Mm -hmm. uh, remember uh, old Fuller saying as he was reading letters from the listeners, Now, mother, read another letter from, from one of our listeners. And then Fuller would read the letter that would be, of course, a, a wonderful, mostly sentimental letter about the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. I learned about music from two, places, two things. We had a pump organ that only one pedal would work, but it was enough to get some air into the uh, into the organ. So I, and we had some music around. I learned a few melodies, that sort of thing, on the pump organ. And then, of course, there was the music on the Lutheran album, which was wonderful hymns. Mm -hmm. Hymns that were removed the car and went to a Baptist-type evangelical church. I didn't think we could sing there. <laughs> Luther. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't sing Lutheran songs. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I found out that they were singing Lutheran songs <laughs> just as much as they were in the Lutheran church down the street. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting you talk about music hours. A couple of weeks ago on this program, I interviewed Rick Matson. He's written a book for IVP called Faith is Like Skydiving, and he sees you as highly instrumental. He talks about you quite often, I think, in this book, and one of the things he that you told him was, use your music as part of your evangelism. I never did any music as a part of evangelism. Rick did. Yeah. Rick very much a musical guy. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, now when I got together with uh, my, my buddies over the summer camp, my guitar sang only uh, folks, pretty much folk songs and, mm -hmm. and very simple, um, very simple tunes. I never really developed that as a ministry. Mm -hmm. Now, when we were talking about the uh, Christianity that you grew up in, now you didn't make it your own until later on in life, right? 
well, it depends on how how long later on is. I I didn't become a Christian as a child. Mm-hmm. I did become a Christian just as I was moving from childhood into manhood. Uh, <laughs> it, it, was, uh, it was just before the seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we went to church as we moved into Butte by that time. We were off, off the ranch. Mm-hmm. I had all my little education and primary education on at a one-room country schoolhouse. Mm-hmm. But we moved to town. We moved a block away from the high of the school and high school, and across the street from the Butte Community Church. Mm-hmm. And that's where we uh, where we went to church. And that's when Pastor Ward Smith, ordinary kind of Baptist type preacher, gave the gospel, and within three or four weeks, five weeks or so, I had had things I worried about and wondered about myself as a younger person. He explained what it is that would make you right with God, mm-hmm. and uh, I did that. I understand, though, from your book, it wasn't something immediate, but you pretty much panicked in some ways the first time you heard a message <laughs> that you passed out, and it was your mother who said, was it something the preacher said? And my mom asked me that, yeah, and yep. I said, yes, mommy. Mm-hmm. And the next week, I walked forward. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, if, I were, if I had been a Pentecostal then, I would have said, oh, I've been slain by the Spirit. <laughs> now that I'm a Presbyterian, and I've published books at the university on a lot of charismatic things, I'm willing to say, yeah, I probably, it probably was mm-hmm. a being developed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, a signal of transcendence that was very, 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 very immediate and very, very personal. Now, since you talk about books, you also came to love books pretty early on in your life, didn't you? Uh, oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hadn't many, but some of the books we had were really quite good. They were ordinary novels. There was no trashy novel in, mm-hmm. the, in the bunch. I remember reading uh, a novel which I thought, oh, this would be a really good professional novel. Listen to who uh, the author is. The author is Raphael uh, Sabatini, and the title was Scaramouche. Mm. Now, that isn't, a, you know, that isn't a great book. I don't know what is actually that was my thought then. It was, it was, it was a thriller, but it was a very good one. Mm-hmm. But others like uh, William, uh, James Fadamore Cooper, and Jules Verne, uh, good storytellers. Mm-hmm. Rachel Horndor stories. Mm-hmm. Saturday Evening Post, Colliers. These are magazines that no longer exist. Right. But magazines filled with stories and a lot of them quite well written. You know, my, uh, my dad was born on a Saturday at tree and he's got a no, I don't know if his house that someone gave him as a gift. His best friend actually—it's a, <clears throat> a blow-up poster of a Saturday Evening Post from the day he was born. <laughs> yep. Now, I had a Rockwell Love and Rockwell cover too. Or would that have been maybe? Be, no, yeah. Now your dad? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it should have been a, a Norman Rockwell cover. Yep, it was. I'm pretty sure it was. Now, you also were early on uh, so got a job when you went into the city life that most of us would consider a dream job, which was running the movie theater, pretty much a projection booth. Yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Uh, you're, run, you're running me to tell you what I did with that job when I became a Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, the church I went to had a lot of these no's involved in it. No drinking, no smoking, no gambling, no whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, included no movies. Uh, and I don't think it included no television. There was not enough of a, a lot of television at that point. Mm -hmm. But no movies. So I didn't know that when I started to get, had the job, even though by that time I was a Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I was rubbing these movies, and but I got even guilty about doing so. Uh, and I told the boss, I said, "Well, I'm, 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 uh, I'm, not, I'm quitting. I, mm -hmm. I didn't need to quit." And mm -hmm. he argued with me, and I told him why, and he wouldn't hold that. He wanted me so badly. Why? I don't know. Well, I guess I was trained, and he'd have to figure out somebody else who was fast uh, mm. enough and trustworthy enough to run the machinery. <laughs> Finally, when I told him that I, I wouldn't work for him if the theater burned down, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't realize what I just said, of course. <laughs> he said, oh, okay, all right, all right. That's <laughs> not funny. Now I know. Now I know. Why is that uh, they're so bad for him? I was, of course, for me it was a metaphor. That's <laughs> awful. Yes, it was a Now, when it came time. But, uh, let me, let me okay. go on and say that by the time I got into college, became involved in university, I realized that that really wasn't uh, a no no that needed to be taken. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely no no. It's a good idea for, for a lot of reasons, but it's. Uh, that's not really something that you focus on. Eventually, I got rid of all the other no-nos as no-nos. Mm. Well, maybe not getting thin, not getting drunk in any case, but yeah. uh, I took up smoking for a short period of time mm. and didn't feel terribly guilty about that. Mm. Even though my wife, when she saw me with a pipe in my mouth, a picture from Korea, she, she, she started the buffer microscope and what she tells me. Mm. Yeah. So, I was always kind to my wife. So there you are, from Dr. Sal. He's no longer going to condemn you if you're watching movies at this point. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I can watch an old no-no, not the right yep. Now, how about when it came time for you to choose a place to further your education? How did that come about? Well, because my pastor, a very good one really, a Baptist trained pastor with kids who had gone to Bethel Seminary and Bethel College, uh, Baptist school in Minnesota, very good one, uh, I thought, well, I'm going to go there. And I also found, I heard that there was a, believe it or not, I had enough boxing cats on this one, a man who was a philosopher, and he was very good, and, and eventually I heard him with intervarsity. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to go there. My dad said, no, 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 no. no. And I, we argued. Yeah. Uh, somebody told me the other day, and I guess it's true, I've never paid too much attention to it. Every boy needs to make a break from his father. Well, <laughs> I was in the process of making a break with my father. And uh, I argued, no, no, it doesn't make any difference. Of course, what happened was, somehow, in the mix of things, I went to the University of Nebraska, where he wanted me to go all along. Mm -hmm. And it was in this particular case, he was right. Uh, I I would not have done. I it's totally unlikely that I would have done anything like what I did do 
Some of which is okay. Some, that's kind of what that's something else. I might have been something better. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, my, my whole course of uh, interest, what I'd be interested in, has, has changed. And I wouldn't have the same life. And I wouldn't have the same grandchildren. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have the same life and grandchildren. Well, not life. But it wouldn't have the same grandchildren problems. Mm-hmm. And children problems and grandchildren problems. Yeah, that's also talked then, because I'm sure things are quite different. Like about how you did come to meet your wife. First off, what was dating like back then, and how is it different from what it is today? Well, you certainly you certainly didn't sleep together on the first date. In fact, you didn't sleep together on the second or third date. In fact, you didn't sleep together until you were married. That sounds like a good idea, actually. I think it's a very good idea, and. So far as I know, at least two of my children, that's the four of them, at least two of my children lived by that idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, it's, it's, you know, it's very, very difficult for a Christian family to maintain that without somehow making children feel that they're too different from their friends. Yep. Social pressure is an incredibly powerful thing. It's mm-hmm. an incredibly powerful factor in in apologetics as well. Mm-hmm. If you have been brought up with a particular environment, a particular take on life, and the Christian faith in its at its heart mm-hmm. contradicts that or puts it under judgment, it's very difficult to accept it. I think that's one of the reasons, one of the kinds of reasons that some of my friends who do not uh, have what I would call centrally Christian beliefs or beliefs which are centrally Centrally Christian enough to call Christian. Uh, a lot of it has to do with that. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when it, it just amazes me how much things have changed. When I was dating my wife, we actually lived about 200 to 250 miles apart. And so when the time came for me to take her to meet my parents, where we kind of had to stay somewhere, and it, my parents had two separate bedrooms there, and so what I did then was think, you know, I'm going to make sure everything's good. So I emailed her dad beforehand, laid out what all the arrangements would be, said my parents are going to be there, they're not going to let us out of their sight pretty much, make sure nothing's going to happen, I'm going to make sure I honor your daughter because you know what my commitment is beforehand, and I know I'm taking her out of state, and she'll be way overnight, and I want to make sure I have your blessing in this, like, you're fine with it. He said, you're very honorable, take good care of her. And <laughs> when it came time for me to propose, before I said anything to Allie about it, I called her parents beforehand and said, yeah, you know I've been dating Allie for so long, and I'd like to propose to her, and I want your blessing. And I suspect a lot of guys, sadly, don't do that kind of thing anymore. One of my grandsons did. Good I'm for sorry, him. One, I'm sorry. One of my, my son-in-laws did that. I think the other one did as well. I don't remember that as much as I do. Uh, Lauder married my oldest daughter after my youngest daughter. <laughs> but in any case, you're right. That whole business of uh, marriage is... A, sacred, and B, social, and C, mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. But that can be just written up. They're just, well, for a time. 
Yeah, the, the sacredness of marriage and sexuality seems to be at an all-time low in our culture. And it, it really amazes me when I argue with atheists and say, like, I'm the one who's saying, this is something good, this is wonderful, this is a treasure, we need to honor it and put it in its proper place, and you're saying I treat this in a cheap way? Yeah, it, it's just the opposite way. Exactly, exactly. Uh, anyway, that's... And I found that, okay? <laughs> you, you know, something that did surprise me also, Red, is that... The, when you... Uh, uh, I'm going to let my wife get that. Okay. Something that did surprise me also is that when I read about how you and Marjorie did get married, that you proposed to her after just a few weeks, didn't you? I did. I did. I, uh, <laughs> she had actually seen me, quote unquote, in an uh, admirable light. Mm-hmm. A little before I had seen her, mm-hmm. uh, she uh, had gone great pain. She'd gone to conference in Colorado, having taken public transportation from North Dakota, which took her through uh, uh, Minneapolis and I think uh, Des Moines and Omaha. And <laughs> by the time she got to the conference at Bertrand Brown University Place in Colorado, she was quite ill. But she got well enough so that on one of the little trips, out trips she took, saw me, I had a little roller on top on, uh, there in the mountains, and she had her first sense of me. I think I liked mm-hmm. At the same time, I had two people I wanted to date. I had her and another person. I dated the other person, okay, but nothing wonderful. And then I started dating Marge, and it was, you know, the experience was absolutely marvelous and brand new. And yeah, I mean, I read that you proposed after a few weeks. See, I proposed to Allie after about, oh, three months' time. I was thinking, wow, someone who moved actually faster than I did. <laughs> you couldn't move any faster. <laughs> now, it was, now you, you all did get married, of course, and if you don't mind asking, how long have you all been married now? Uh, let's see, it will be 59 years. 59? Fifty nine, I think. Yeah, it would be fifty nine. Wow! Congratulations. Now, it was shortly after you got married, though, that you entered what I think you would say is the worst period of your life, probably, and that would be military service. Yeah. Tell us about that, some. Well, the, the worst thing about it was I wasn't really in contact, a personal contact with. Very many people who were obviously Christians. Mm-hmm. And in Korea, there was no, uh, there, was, there was a chapel, but it was out of reach for me. But even though I was an officer, um, even though I was an officer, the uh, I couldn't get a jeep when I really would like to have had one. And so that was missing. Mm-hmm. And that meant my... That part of life was missing. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I never really liked being in Korea. I, I didn't mind being in Korea because it was fun. I minded being in Korea because Marge wasn't with me. Mm-hmm. If Marge had been with me and we'd been, I'd been serving in the military together, that would have been 
much, much better. I have the advantage, however, of being late, if you will, later than my colleagues getting into to Korea because I was held back to be a courier officer in Japan for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I, I got there, I got assigned to the headquarters. And that, of course, is a much better place to be than out in the, out in the units of the, of the field. Mm -hmm. Moreover, I did not have to be in command of anything. Second lieutenant, or the second officer, and the two officer unit called the uh, company. Mm -hmm. I would have gone off there. Mm -hmm. I'm, not a, I'm not a commander. I'm not a, I'm not a manager. Mm -hmm. I've managed, but I managed to manage somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not that, you know, you're opposed to military, you're just that it wasn't for you, right? No, no, I, so I have, I didn't think the military was a very good place to be. Somebody told me, sure, this is a peacetime. It's a peacetime army. Mm -hmm. When you get it, when, when you have something to do, things click. Yeah. And I'm sure that's true. Yeah. And I honor, I honor our military like you wouldn't imagine. Uh, I, I weep for them, I pray for them. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. They're not the ones that I'm <laughs> really, really concerned for, are the ones that are out there because they're commanded to be, they have to be. They're mm -hmm. the. the the hands of feet of the mm. peace force. Now, this was in the Korean War that you served, right? I was out right after the Korean War. The Korean okay. War was over. Mm. Uh, this is 1956, mm. uh, and I was there 16 months. So I came back in early 1957, mm. June 1957. Now, one of the other things you also did like that was you found that you were pretty much expendable. Two minutes, right? <laughs> yeah, I thought I had a job that when I got ill just before I came back, that uh, before they shipped me out, somebody would come and debrief me. They never came. I wasn't debriefed. But presumably, the military continued on doing quite well without me. Mm hmm. Yeah. Good lesson to learn. Now, when you got back, however, you did get a blessing other than seeing Marjorie, of course, and that was InterVarsity Fellowship, right? Yes, I had been a member when I was an undergraduate, and so getting back to a university where there was an InterVarsity a Christian Fellowship, I immediately had found it. Found it at, at uh, Washington State University and was a, what you would call a grad student volunteer uh, advisor mm -hmm. for the group. You know, this might surprise some people about your mind that you're you've got a degree in English, but your writing your spelling can sometimes be horrible to this day, and you have to have and your wife really helps go over what you write, and I'm sure there's a lot of red at the end, isn't there? Well, don't don't make my spelling too bad. <laughs> it's not too bad. It's just. <laughs> Uh, it's just sometimes bad, mm. <laughs> but bad enough so I don't want to send it out without having someone else look, look over it and, and do something to it, and that's what she was able to do with my graduate papers. Mm. If, my, if my graduate papers had been like my undergraduate papers, I might have gotten, mm. as I did, undergraduate, I got good grades, mm. but uh, there were, there were, uh, Apparently, the spelling and 
occasional punctuation and grammar were not uh, considered quite so important as my understanding of what I was writing about. So, yeah, I, I was very relieved to find out that some papers you got, apparently the professors weren't too thrilled with what you said. Freshman or sophomore, yeah, that's right. Now, you were, you were willing to keep a toe in the academic field as much as you could being a professor and such, but you also got the chance to be the editor for InterVarsity, right? Uh, right. Never intended. Mm-hmm. So, what exactly happened? Well, I was, uh, when I got, when I worked my graduate degree for six years at the University of Missouri, uh, when I arrived on campus, the university chapter had two people left in it, the president mm-hmm. and the secretary. Uh, it took me a couple of weeks to find where they were, uh, and uh, then we, we, I met with them, and took those two people and some other graduate uh, students who were former university people, mm-hmm. and we decided whether there would even be a chapter. I forced them to vote, the two of them to vote what they wanted to continue their chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were two Presbyterians, and the options was to go to a Baptist uh, place, and so there was no difficulty. They voted. <laughs> unanimously to keep the chapter going. Mm-hmm. So I became their, and they had just lost their uh, their sponsor. So mm-hmm. I became their sponsor immediately. Uh, and uh, we had a couple of years later, a half a dozen or more, and eventually got a staff member. And the group grew into a viable university group over those six years. And in this process, while you've been at the university, you've been writing a lot of books. Uh, what books do you think been ones that you've kind of taken the most pride in writing. <laughs> well, the most both the most pride and the most uh, and the most uh, surprise. Uh-huh. And that was the book you mentioned, the Universe Next Door. Right. That came. There, there are a lot of reasons why that book succeeded, for as some of the other things I've done have not done so well. Uh, is that. It came exactly the right time in the, in the uh, American Christian evangelical culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francis Schaeffer had been writing, and I'd just become his editor. Um, his books, Francis Schaeffer's books, had become successful. He was one of the first evangelical scholar, pastors, evangelists to speak university language to university students such mm-hmm. that. There was a, a, that they had a real ministry to university students. First of all, the university students that would end up in the grade where he had his retreat uh, center mm-hmm. and, and the family and so forth. And secondly, because what he lectured, he lectured to university groups all over the country and was highly successful in attracting an audience. And the churches began to catch on, the evangelical churches began to catch on across mainline ground denominations as well as the, as the broad, broad evangelical churches. Well, my book was a distillation, in a sense, in one sense it was brand new. In another sense, it was a distillation of the attitude that Schaefer took toward the understanding of culture. What Schaefer did was to speak to people whose minds were set primarily in a university mode and needed to be addressed in the university mode. Mm-hmm. And that university mode uh, uh, it was in the shape of naturalism 
and uh, various and sundry religions into which students had, had gotten involved. So he, he had, and he stood in a tradition of worldview analysis mm-hmm. as well. So I took up, uh, not knowing really what I was doing in terms of what, it, what effect it would have on the uh, future of worldview thought, I just did a basic book for undergraduate students. It was not intended to be anything other than that, uh, to help a student coming from a Christian world somewhere, a mainline or evangelical, getting into the university and suddenly discovering that the teachers seem to be talking from a point of view they couldn't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, they mentioned the Bible. The Bible didn't seem to have any bearing. Now, in my day, you usually were not criticized for that. But, uh, and put down for that. Today you are. It's yep. worse today. Yep. Uh, uh, and uh, this book addressed that, that situation. Mm. The Bible that was published, 1976, I did in University Press for six years by that time. Mm. Eight years by that time. Mm. And the Bible that was getting, got picked up as a textbook by Christian colleges and Christian professors at secular colleges mm-hmm. for the introduction to philosophy or to, in some cases, one of the first books students would read once they got into the uh, university. That was the case in Covenant College in in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that was was the book that really did it. And I was always interested in having a voice on the university campus. Mm -hmm. This this became my voice. Mm -hmm. And he he got me back on campus. I had... uh, I had left campus in 1968 when I became an editor, being invited to be an editor, not seeking the job at all. Uh, I had to leave something that I thought God was calling me to, mm-hmm. and I realized that he was calling me to something else. Mm-hmm. And doing so, I had to possibly abandon much of my university ministry. Well, what happened? I, I became an editor, and then I felt the impact on the university. So, Win-win. But that's why that book, among other reasons, that's why that book was the one that both pleases me and and what had happened surprised me and continues to surprise me. You talked about having a voice somewhere. In one place I was surprised to hear the impact your voice was having when you talked about it on a personal level was over in the Eastern Bloc in Europe. Could you tell a little bit about what it was like getting to speak over there and how you were received and what impact Christianity is having over there? That too was a surprise. Mm-hmm. One surprise was to find out where Bulgaria was. I got a call from one of my friends in the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, which is the umbrella organization that sort of ties together a lot of movements in a lot of countries. I got a, a telephone call from him, and he said, would you like to come to Bulgaria? That was 19, mm-hmm. 1990, I think, spring of 1990, or 91, 91. I, I, my first reaction Bulgaria, Bulgaria. Where's Bulgaria? But, Bulgaria is that, that's that country that Shakespeare has a border with a base, or with a, a black sea on. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, <laughs> anyhow, uh, I learned what the Bulgaria was and uh, said yes. And 
I just got introduced to an entirely different world. Mm -hmm. uh, 1991 was, my, I think, my first trip. Or 92, my first trip into mm -hmm. Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And I went to several countries at the time. I went pretty much after that, every spring and every fall, uh, I would take a two, three week stint in uh, Eastern Europe. And, and, and when I got there the first time, some of these places, I was the first person, the first Christian, not just any Christian, the first Christian, mm -hmm. to speak at some of these universities, mm -hmm. like the Kivinowitzki University in, in Sofia, Bulgaria. Uh, and it was easy. If you put up a little sign, and a, uh, one of the type, type signs, on a door somewhere in the university saying, you know, such and such was going to happen in a place that, at some place, you get a, you get a group of students there. Because they were, they were hungry for something other than the, the communist ideology that they had been under. They knew that was wrong. They mm -hmm. knew that. Well, I, I've got professors who, who told me, this is a professor in, in Romania, in Yash, Romania. He said, when I was, for 40 years I taught lines. But turns out he's a, he is and continued to be during that time some kind of Russian Orthodox person, I should say, Eastern Orthodox person. Christian, but very, very much ethically oriented, and I want to say almost Christian president at that time of Czech, in the Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia. And uh, I was supposed to find out whether, to, whether this professor was really a Christian or not from the group I was with. And so I asked him, I made a comment, I said, you know, one of the things we, uh, that was interesting to me is how Pavel integrated with political uh, justice and with uh, from a, a non-Christian standpoint that he does everything but notice that the final being in the universe is not just impersonal it's really the Christian God mm. and the professor said that Howard is just on the table and he said yes yes heart God Mm -hmm. So we continued our discussion, and afterwards I told the students, said, well, I'm not exactly sure where he stands, but I treat him as if he's a Christian, and <laughs> listened to him and talked with him and so forth. Turns out he really was a Christian. Mm. And he became involved, not with the Baptist Church, which was quite active in much at that time, but uh, in the Orthodox Church. Now, I was also very surprised to read a comment that one of the professors told you that the professors over there were scared to face the Christian philosophy from the West because it was so very good. Well, this was at the University of Yudash in, in Romania also. And uh, that's what I was told. Mm -hmm. so notice after we were finished, we had a, had a group of faculty there. None of them from the philosophy department. Mm -hmm. And the comment was, 
They're not here because they know that they don't have an answer for a serious Christian philosophy. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to come. Now, it's been a long, long time since you've, uh, since the start where we talk about being in the Sand Hills and such. Uh, when was the last time you went back to the Sand Hills? Last time I went back to uh, Eastern Europe. To the Sand Hills. Oh, the Sand Hills. Oh, well, uh, off and on throughout my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever we could, uh, my parents lived still on the river of the Sand Hills, and we would drive there and then, after I moved to Chicago, it was a lot less, but many times when I was back, at least they get a, a taste or smell of, it, of the wind, if not the fall of itself. But uh, in the last few years, Marge and I have had a chance to spend some vacations there, mm-hmm. a week or two. Mm-hmm. How different of the Sand Hills now from when you were growing up there? Well, certainly as a, as a place to be, no difference at all. For one thing, there are so few people there that were, the land doesn't change mm-hmm. much. Uh, climate mm-hmm. changes and so forth, but the land doesn't change. Mm-hmm. So you still have the same sense and feeling of God's creation. Mm-hmm. A lot of it uh, untouched in terms, <clears throat> I should say, un- not altered much by human uh, occupation. The way in which the land is treated is, of course, much more modern. Mm-hmm. There are very few places where we saw recently, on uh, the last trip there, where we saw any haste being stacked. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was all bales, but instead of those heavy 100 plus pound bales of hay, there was huge, multi, multi hundred pound rolls of which fortunately for human beings cannot be lifted by a human being, mm-hmm. so must be transported, transported by uh, other machine. Mm-hmm. So it's easier work in some ways in mm-hmm. that sense. The machines have replaced a lot of a, a lot of hand-on hands-on work. But that's about all. Nebraska's mm-hmm. the, the, the families of Nebraska were always educated. The, uh, from the very beginning, education was high on the list of what the the immigrants wanted. University of Nebraska has been announced since 1868. Nebraska was since 1889. And uh, there are several other colleges and, mm-hmm. and, and state colleges around the state. So it's an educated place. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you, know, you talk about, about country kicks, mm-hmm. but they're educated country kicks. Sure, they're country. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of difference between a country person and a rural person. Mm-hmm. In terms of what counts as work, uh, it, uh, I think country votes character. I, I wish some of our kids and grandkids could have had the characters built by mm-hmm. country work. Yep. Not enough for them to do in Downers Grove mm-hmm. or downtown Chicago mm-hmm. or in the mm-hmm. suburbs, either one. Yeah, if you could uh, go back in time somehow and meet your younger self from where you are now. What's the one piece of wisdom you wish you could pass on? I don't know that I have any wisdom. <laughs> I just, I really have, I really haven't changed my mind radically. Mm-hmm. I think I've grown up. I think I have a, a you know, a, a greater stock of ideas, a, mm-hmm. a greater stock of 
how to treat those ideas. But mostly when I talk to kids, I just tell them, think, be educated, ask questions, mm -hmm. and uh, move ahead. Mm -hmm. that, that counts for somebody born in the river of the sand hills as well as someone born in the, in the what shall I say, the, uh, the, the rich high-rises of the Yeah, I remember uh, going back to my old high school one time, and after I had graduated from college, you know, thinking, going to my old high school journalism class, and, because the teacher had really liked me, and telling the kid, and she said, what would you advise the kids? And I said, honestly, kids, um, your teacher isn't pointing me up to say this, she isn't know what I'm saying, but I'm going to tell you that anyway, read. Read anything that you can. Yep. I mean, how do you get to think? Exactly. By reading other people's thoughts and rethinking mm. them. Yep. And maybe rejecting them. <laughs> now, when we look at some of your other books, such as The Projects Beyond Reason, you make quite a case from an argument from Kraft and Traselli. Well, it's not musical for you. You change it to, another, to your kind of language. But it's the argument they gave that the music of Bach exists. Therefore, God exists. And their explanation is, you either see this or you don't. What do you see when you see that argument? Well, my first uh, response when I, said it, I saw it uh, when the book was published, it must have come 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. But, oh my goodness, that's funny. Uh, but, actually, it's... It's not an old argument. It's an, I mm -hmm. mean, it's not a new argument. It's an old argument. Yep. It's the argument from aesthetics. Uh-huh. Uh, Bach's music plays, there's something really glorious has happened mm -hmm. to the sound. Yep. Something that glorious has happened to melody, mm -hmm. to rhythm. What uh, never, never happened that way before. Okay. <laughs> version of the Baroque. You, you, you takes the Baroque form to the heights of its, uh, to the heights. You, you can't get any higher. you got to have a new form. <laughs> Which, of course, you do. Mm -hmm. Music is historical as well. And the argument I would want to say, there's the music of Beethoven. Mm -hmm. And there's the music of uh, uh, Dave, Dave Luba. Mm -hmm. And the sound of the music of Tara Desmond. Mm -hmm. And the crazy, weird stuff of, uh, oh gosh, now I can't think of them. But anyway, with the beat in the uh, post Dave Brubeck era, mm -hmm. I'll think of it sometime. Yeah, when I was in seminary at Shuri Summer, I wrote a paper on Thomas Aquinas and his views of beauty and beauty as a pointer to God. And, yeah. Yeah. and what you talk about in your book is the idea that everything that exists is a pointer to God in some way. And it's reminds me of what Peter Kraft said also in his book, Heaven the Heart's Deepest Song, where he said, everything that you see here is either a clue to what heaven is like or to what hell is like. Ah, uh, right. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, I would, I would, I would go along with that. But mm-hmm. you see, this is another version of the argument from evil. Mm-hmm. That is, if there is such a thing as evil, then there is got to be some measure by which evil is evil. Mm-hmm. Evil, uh, evil doesn't have a goal. Mm-hmm. Evil is just. I, I don't know how you describe it. It's, it's something that. It's a lack. A mentally constructed person is going to see yeah. as really, really, really bad, mm-hmm. and it's extremely difficult, for instance, to see how ISIS could be so evil. And how does ISIS point to God? Right. Well, ISIS points to God if because it, it, there's a necessity for at least a, a possibility of hell. Mm-hmm. Because you've got a realization of what hell would be like right here on earth in a way that cannot be denied. Mm-hmm. But right in front of your fa- right in front of your, the parents' children are beheaded. Mm-hmm. How? Not only do the parents feel this, mm-hmm. but the people who hear about it on television are horrified. Mm-hmm. Not in the same sense, but they recognize this as a horror, and they are. Sometimes you might say scared to death that something like that's going to happen in, in, in their culture, our culture. Look what's going on. Are we going to reach a place where we are so pluralistic in our society that we can no longer live with our deepest differences and we're going to be taking care of that through violence? Mm-hmm. Uh, that can't be. Well, if that can't be, and if there has to be a good, what explains the good? Right. Evil can be explained by a denial of the good. In other words, there has to be a good mm-hmm. in order for evil to exist. Otherwise, evil and good, you'd be a total nihilist. Mm-hmm. If you don't difference between evil and good. And that would violate, and that would violate, I think, everyone's sense mm-hmm. of what must be. Even the evil person thinks they're good. But I can't imagine the people who flew their planes into the buildings in New York were not thinking that they were honoring the good, honoring God, mm-hmm. following Him in order to do that. And they were going to be rewarded for it. Yeah. They would now be martyrs for the cause of God. So the good, even they had a notion of the good, part of which was very personal. They get to be, uh, they get to be to have some kind of paradise. You know, I'd even, I'd even go a little bit further for what you were saying, right? You were saying that there would be no difference between good and evil. I'd even say the terms good and evil would just be meaningless at that point. It's just personal preference. That's right. Yeah. And, and persons are different. Yeah. In that, preference, no better than mine. Mine, no, no better than... Uh, 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 you know, Osama Baden, uh, Osama Baden, uh, uh, I'm sorry, not Os- Osama, Osama Bin Laden. Bin Laden! <laughs> 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 I just thought I'd make a couple of things, and I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, someone once said, I don't remember who it was, I read years ago, someone said that we should award Hitler an honorary degree in theology because he showed us all how much we need God. Oh, that's probably a horror analogy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Yes, it was. Yeah. Uh, 
people have uh, uh, action slide skills. Mm-hmm. They write, what should I say, they write in the sand. I think G.K. Chesterton said years ago in his book Orthodoxy that when you see two boys skinning a cat for the fun of it, you can either deny original sin or you can deny good and evil. He said some modern theologians choose instead to deny the cat. I'm sure in all your reading, you've read plenty of Chesterton. And he, yeah, but I, I, when I was living with a roommate, once uh, he he's into a project like I am, and he wanted to borrow my copy of The Complete Father Brown Mysteries, and he told me one night that, uh, well, he, he told me the next day that he'd gone to bed that night, and he was going to read one of the mysteries, and then go to sleep. So I was up for two or three hours reading those mysteries. <laughs> but he couldn't put them down. Now, when you talk about the uh, projects beyond reason, what you're pointing to is a transcendence in that. What do you mean by that? I know I've heard the siren, but what I'm interested in is what does that siren mean? 
Right. Well, means in general, some kind of danger. Mm. Get out of the way. We're coming through. It suggests maybe there's a death. It suggests maybe there's a tornado. Uh, it's, but each of these things is a further transcendence of the immediate siren. Even uh, the fact that it's a siren and not just sound is a bit of transcendence. Yep. But when you, when you realize that that sound, that siren, that death, that, that danger, none of those can be understood in and of themselves. They're not, they're not self-explanatory. They're only there because they are in some sort of being or becoming. Mm-hmm. Material being is always becoming. Right. Uh, and, and so the first God is no longer becoming the presence of God that it is. Mm-hmm. So that's what a particular transcendence because of the whole range of almost anything mm-hmm. can do that. From the music of Bach, the magnificence of a really good computer that always, <laughs> always obeys your will and, and doesn't get hacked. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a dream. Is <laughs> it hacked? Um, my wife, I think, has been hacked a few times, but I'm morphing also the idea of a computer that always obeys your will more than the one that I'm constantly having to realize is testing my anger, considering I think, do what you're supposed to do already. <laughs> but that has to do with what you're doing with your fingers. Right. You know, I mean, it's not what my fingers it's what I want my fingers to do mm-hmm. that will make the computer do what it does. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but the computer's not going to think for you. That's another very interesting yep. uh, subject in terms of apologetics. And I and my uh, atheist friend, who, with whom I've written a book, Carl, Carl Ferreno, mm-hmm. Carl and I argue about whether uh, the human being is totally a machine, and whether it's a computer or some other kind of machine. Yeah, he says that everything is a everything is a machine. Mm-hmm. But this machine that we're working on now, pretty well, all of technology allows to be Skype as well as email uh, uh, and so forth. That couldn't be without some kind of uh, something else of supporting it—a mm-hmm. designer, someone who puts it together, someone who understands how right. that I how computers work. Mm-hmm. My son is a programmer for State Farm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he understands more than I do, and he doesn't understand mm-hmm. uh, a lot of stuff either. Mm-hmm. So. We're, we're about an hour into our show, so we're going to take a little break from the conversation here. And we'll let everyone know that uh, if you're liking what I've got going on right now, we've got Dr. James Sire as our guest this week. You can, <laughs> But if you're listening in next week, I'm going to have Graham Veer as my guest. Now, he's written a book about the new atheism and a survivor's guide to the new atheism. We're going to be talking with him about that. We're going to be having a show an hour early that day, so if you're listening to it live, then you need to be here at 2 uh, two to 4 p.m. Eastern Time instead of the usual 3 to 5. And yes, we are going to be working on going live, and hopefully someday we'll get back to the point where we can have callers calling in to the show again, but Granville is going to be here. We're going to be talking about things such as is there a conflict between religion and science and even about monsters made out of spaghetti. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about with that, but it's going to be an interesting show. <coughs> and I'd like to remind you all also, 
and that some of you are first time listeners through the Universal Pentecostal Network, but everything that I do here is supported by you. I get no pay for doing the show. No one hires me to do the show. It's just something that I do in my own free will as a service to you all. But your support would be greatly appreciated. I don't pay my guests. Even my guests come on and give a very free time. But if you want to support it, what I'm doing here, which is the Ministry of Deeper Waters, go to deeperwaters.wordpress.com. That's my blog. You'll find a link there that will tell you how to donate, and you, by the way, you'll also find a link for several past archives of the show, so you can listen in to past programs, see what all you've missed, and there was quite a lot to keep you busy there for a while, but you click on the donate button, and that will take you to Risen Jesus Ministries. Now, that's the ministry of my father-in-law, Mike Sakona, and you make a, a donation there, and then, very important, you email either me or him, and my email is listed on the blog page as well. You email one of us and say, Hey, I made a donation to Nick Peters. I made a donation to Deeper Waters. And I want to make sure he gets it. Now, if you do that, then yes, we will get it. And Risen Jesus is a 501c3. So that means your gift will be tax deductible. You can get a receipt for your gift. Everything you need for your tax purposes can be provided for. <laughs> now we've also got some ebooks out there as well. Once I've written with my ministry partner, the latest one I've written with him is Defining NLNC. I encourage you all to read that if you want to pay attention to the NLNC debate, especially one that does involve Mike Fracona and how he's been unfairly targeted in many cases. But uh, there's another ebook <coughs> that's also coming out. And that's a God in Natural Disasters. I believe that's the title we've chosen for it now. Dr. Sire here talked about writing a book with an atheist where it's a back and forth dialogue. Well, that's pretty much what happened here. It was an atheist who does some work with Dan Barker. And he and I had a long back and forth on whether natural disasters are a disproof of the existence of God. As you can guess, my answer is no. But that book will be coming out. I think we're going to sell it for $7.50. I, I encourage you to get and leave positive reviews. And by the way, keep in mind, this podcast can be found on iTunes as well. And I would really appreciate you going to the iTunes page and leaving a positive review for the Deeper Waters podcast there as well. And there's still yet another way that you can support what we're doing here for ministry. And that's when you go to my blog page, you can find an Amazon store. And at the Amazon store, there are listed uh, various books, including ones that you hear about on the podcast. And yes, I still need to do some updating of that with the Galileus ones in. But if you're going to go and you're going to buy the books, why not buy them in a way that it won't cost you any more money? And a small amount of the proceeds will go to support the Ministry of Deeper Waters. You can find all of this from my blog page. There. And, and I, I just say this a lot because I really encourage you to give. It's 
the best way that you can keep the ministry going, and I would really appreciate your support. And, now, Dr. Sar, I've spent some time talking about deeper waters, you know, and how people can support it. Is there any ministry or organization you'd like people to support as well? Well, the one that I give most of my support to, except in my local church, is InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in right. Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, they uh, are a ministry on campus, and they, uh, <laughs> if you like my books, you'll like InterVarsity. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say if you don't like my books, you won't like InterVarsity. That's another argument. Right. And InterVarsity is, I, I owe them a debt of gratitude for everything that they've done here. The reason that you're on the show is because they sent me a copy of your book and they got in touch with you, so you got in touch with me. And they've sent a number of books for me to review and they, they've really been nothing but friendly throughout the whole process. You're one of the marketers. <laughs> yeah, although I will say I'm quite sure my wife panics every time she... I come back from the post office and there's another book and she's saying, where are we going to keep all of your books? Well, do like I had to do. I built a two-and-a-half-car garage. And the second floor, I, I thought of the building. Mm -hmm. I saw on the second floor he put in um, bookcases around the edges. Mm -hmm. got to try that. Maybe young enough. I, I, I'm exhausted pretty much the space that's up there now. Yeah, I may be young, but I'm no physical specimen. I think my wife would be even more concerned about my trying to build something here. But <laughs> that, that, that's another funny story. I'll have to tell you about that another time. But let's get back to what you were talking about. When you were describing this transcendence, I couldn't help but think of uh, C.S. Lewis with his things such as The Argument from Desire and Surprise by Joy, where he talks about how you have these rare movements, I think he calls them Zangzooks, Something like that. You probably know exactly what word he uses. But it's that you get a, a signal of that there's something greater than what you've experienced right now. And the desire you experience at that point, it's actually a good desire. And you enjoy the desire itself. And it's not something you can wear. It just happens. Is that the kind of thing you're thinking about? hear about Jesus perchance what we can do is we can look at our world and we can see that 
we can be like the little children on Christmas morning who open all of our gifts and at the end say, there's got to be more than this. Happiness is a choice. You know, it was written by Christians. We I mean, talk about uh, counseling people who live a rich lifestyle. Like, I've got a great job. I make a lot of money. I've got a beautiful wife. I've got a mistress on the side. I've got cars. I've got everything I've ever wanted. And I keep asking myself, why don't I just go ahead and just kill myself? And that that that's a very real reality, cause it's yeah. the, the old saying that someone once said. I wish I'd known that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Yeah. Now, for you, you find a lot of these echoes of a voice as you get the saying from N.T. Wright. I think it is. Yeah, N.T. Wright calls these echoes uh, calls these echoes of transcendence echoes of a voice, mm-hmm. echoes of the voice of Jesus. Yeah. So that when you when you're catching this beautiful mountain scenery, that's God, the echo, that's God. He spoke, he spoke that into existence. Mm-hmm. Here's the echo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, around here for me, it, it counts as automatically awesome once you refer to N.T. Wright as your source. That when you uh, see these echoes, for you, a lot of them seem to take place in literature. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking that, for instance, it, it could depend a lot on your fears since literature is your area. My wife happens to be an artist, so I'm sure she'd see a lot of the, uh, hear a lot of the echoes of the voices we went to, say, an art museum. For instance, and we go to a painting, and chances are she, oh, isn't that just beautiful? And I'd look and say, mm, that's nice. That'd be me. But... Now, when I, I say literature, some people are saying, oh, you just mean 
the Bible in Christian literature, and, and that's where you get all your echoes, but you find echoes everywhere in literature, don't you? Absolutely, and it could be Virginia Woolf uh, or most anti-Christian. Mm-hmm. So, but I thought that she could write in such a way that you're impressed by her expression, impressed by what she understands, mm-hmm. and impressed by her self-understanding, and her ability to, to express that. You are, you're witnessing the work of God. Yeah. Being, being used, and in this particular case, being misused. Mm-hmm. But it's there. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're talking about Virginia Woolf, who was, in fact, not only non Christian, but we'd even say she was anti Christian. She but, was, yes. But she how, actually came out against, uh, against uh, Christianity. Yeah. And there's a difference. Mm-hmm. Dawkins is anti-Christian. Yep. A lot of scientists are atheists and to to like to uh, religious questions, agnostic. Mm-hmm. That is, their atheism doesn't lead them to say there's there's nothing else worth uh, worth believing. Right. But I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. This is for well, even Dawkins says that science makes the the uh, the lack of design show us by itself that we have no need for God. Mm-hmm. Now, when you look at someone like Virginia Woolf, who who was anti-Christian, what what do you see in her literature that still points to Christianity anyway? Well, again, the artfulness of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, her ability to take a particular philosophic view and predict it, what the world would be like if mm-hmm. that was what we had to deal with. First, mm-hmm. I, I think one of the one of her first books that succeeded was uh, Jacob's Room. Mm-hmm. Jacob's Room is a book about a boy who dies, a, a young man who dies in the war, and his story and the story of his parents and the other characters in the in the novel, are all told, not completely, because it's impossible to do this completely, but at least the attempt is made throughout the novel, mm-hmm. not to say, uh, there's London. London lives like a, you know, like a, 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 a lump on a big rug. No, no. She's not talking about London looking like that. She is talking about the London that is perceived. Mm. She talks about uh, in the opening, in the opening of uh, Jacob's room, that she, the woman character she's observing, the character she's getting inside the mind of, is one who looks up and sees a, a yacht mast wobble. Well, yacht masts don't wobble. They lean, they tilt. That's a, but they don't wobble. But in, in her eyes, they wobble. Why? Because she's crying. Mm-hmm. And so you were, so much of the novel, as you read it, the lights went out in the garden. Mm-hmm. How did they go out in the garden? Because the light on the inside of the house was turned out. Mm-hmm. And so there was no longer any light coming to the window to be on the garden. So she says, the lights went out in the garden. Mm-hmm. Those, uh, when you first start reading a Virginia Woolf novel, <laughs> You're either going to put it down pretty quickly, or you're going to say, 
Well, I don't think I can figure out what she's doing. But after you went to it, uh, if you're willing to give yourself to it, after you went to it for a while, you're going to say, wow, this is brilliant. She has characters in one of her novels that have signals of transcendence, mm. but they end, they end in nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking that Mortimer Adler, years ago, wrote a book called How to Read a Book. When you got people out there who are hearing this and they're fascinating a bit, what advice would you give them for whenever they read literature, if they're willing to try and figure out how to analyze it at this level? What would you recommend? Yeah, I'd recommend my own book, mm-hmm. which I wrote at the time of How to Read a Book had been published for a while, mm-hmm. and I deliberately didn't read it because I wanted to. I wanted to do it my way, you know, <laughs> do it my way. After I had done my book, I read Marilyn Adler's book, and I said, gee, I'm glad I didn't read this beforehand. My book, however, is very different from his, but not contradictory. Except in a couple of cases, it's really not contradictory. It's just two, two ways of getting at much the same book. But I, my, the book I wrote was How to Read Slowly. Mm. Uh, came about through an actual historical, if you will, personal experience. I was teaching... Uh, English literature at the time at Trinity College in Deerfield. Mm-hmm. And I brought the chairman, a very young man, who had written a book or really had a program called Speed Reading. He had a speed reading program. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of his students were taking that speed reading program. And what I got from in my classes, and they began to try to speed read the stuff I was teaching, and they, they, would, they were terrible readers. Mm-hmm. They, they might have been reading. Uh, according to, the, to my truck department chairman. So I said, I didn't tell him, but I just, but I was only working there part time anyway. I didn't tell him what I was doing, I just did it. I thought, when this book comes out, you'll <laughs> see it as, a, as an implicit criticism. But uh, what you do is you use your mind and you look to see, in a sense, you look to see what is there in a sentence, just like. A scientist looks to see, like Agassiz of the fish, looks to see what's in the fish. Mm-hmm. Agassiz used to give his students a fish, a Harvard professor a long time ago, and say, come back with a description of the fish. They'd come back with a description of the fish, and he'd say, come back again, do it again. Over and over and over and over. So finally, Agassiz said, well, I think you understand the fish. But it's only by spending a lot of time looking, mm-hmm. observing, paying attention. So, uh, but that's basically what, what I wanted you to do. You pay attention to the words, you pay attention to the sentences, you pay attention to the paragraph, you pay attention to the structure, you pay attention to the imagery, mm-hmm. uh, and you pay, pay attention to the ideas. Mm-hmm. And the overall thing is to recognize, and this I did do more of in, uh, in a little bit more explanation and apologetics beyond reason, you recognize that there is a world view mm-hmm that is presented in a story, and yeah. even a poem. Yesterday upon the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. I met him there again today. Gee, I wish you'd go away. What, what picture of the world do you get there? It's a tiny little picture mm-hmm. about what's really real, what's not real, and what you feel. Mm-hmm. What kind of, you know, 
very primitive world, but it's a world. And it takes place of something larger than the native clarity itself. It needs a larger world to understand. We understand it. Because we often feel like that. My goodness. I just, I just see the ghost. Or, or I keep having a really odd experiences. Mm-hmm. I wish I didn't have these odd experiences. I, I sometimes fear death. Right. I don't do that. What kind of a world do you have those experiences? What's that shape? And is it, is it what's really there? Do you really die? Yes. <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're made of just machinery. Uh, yeah, but we will not know that we are dead. <laughs> so why would we know? There's no we left. There's no I left. Yeah. Really? I think I tell the story of the, uh, of the primitive evangelism that was used on radio by the National Council of Churches oh, back in the 60s sometime, I think. guy comes to the door and knocks, and the guy comes to the evangelist comes to the door and, and knocks, and, and the guy at the door says, uh, Hello, I'm Ron Jones. I, I'm, a, I'm a member, uh, my family goes to the... First Presbyterian Church, Downers Grove. Uh, we'd like to invite you to come there. You get coffee and uh, so forth, and here uh, have a good worship service and a lot of fellowship and friendship. Why don't you come? Well, the guy come by and pick you up and take it. The guy says, "Well, uh, next Sunday, uh, uh, I, I, I actually as well. I can't be there." But what about those the day after that? Well, uh, I'm coming out of town. I've got this. Uh, I've uh, got this uh, job that I need to do. What about that? Well, after mm-hmm. he got about three weeks and he can't be there. And the fourth time, well, sure, come after that. The guy says, Gee, I might be dead by then. Mm-hmm. And the evangelist says, That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the little story mm-hmm. was a frightening possibility. Right. You know, I'm remembering that, I think it was after I took the class in Bible College where we used the universe next door as one of the textbooks. You know, as a class think on worldview thinking, we were told, after you've gone through this class and studied worldviews, you will never watch a movie the exact same way again. And they've been right. And I've been watching a lot of things and Hmm, I wonder what perspective this offer is coming from, and just trying to find those little clues and such. It really enriches the way you see a movie or read a book or anything else, because you're really interacting with the author's mind a lot more, man. Not only that, you're interacting with the mind of the culture. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff you see on television mm-hmm. is a, uh, it's darn near the perfect image of what life is actually really like. Mm-hmm. And I think of this uh, in terms of the difference between Ozzy and Harriet 40 years ago, or Andy Griffith mm-hmm. Mayberry yeah. 40 years ago, and currently Law & Order, or... Uh, you, you name it, any other, or, or even a comedy, any comedy, pretty much any comedy. And Norma Mayberry, of course, that was an idealized uh, 
society, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Almost ideal society. But it was a it was an ideal. Mm-hmm. Now look at today's ideal society in uh, what two men and a boy or something like that. I've forgotten the name of it. Two and a half men. I don't watch it, but I, not because I think they're evil, but because I <laughs> I do not enjoy them. Right. But what's the view that comes out? Well, nothing at all. Like it's okay to sleep with people. It's okay to have affairs that your husband or wife doesn't know about. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. There's no. There, by the way, there isn't any spiritual dimension at all. If anyone walks in who has some kind of religion, it's usually either ignored or mistreated. Mm-hmm. Now, once in a while, once in a while, you'll find a, a show. Uh, there's one uh, on the an angel was gotten a, a, a black uh, woman and a white woman were angels. That was that was actually pretty darn. I think you're talking about touched by an angel. That's it, touched by an angel. That mm-hmm. was that was really had a, a a Christian context, uh, not literally, mm-hmm. perchance, but ideologically, ideologically. But there are very very few. Very very. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but at the same time, I think you, with your mentioning Virginia Woolf, you think it's important for us to not shield ourselves from me so much so that we only interact with and enjoy things from the Christian culture that we need to be seeing what the non-Christian culture is putting out there as well. Yeah, and a lot of it's to be enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the really nasty shows are terribly funny. Yep. The words both were terribly funny mm-hmm. at the same time. Right. Uh, Monty Python is <laughs> one of my favorite characters. <laughs> but uh, and very, very funny. But you don't get much of a Christian understanding of reality from, uh, from the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get slightly non Christian. Yeah, I think. Uh when my friends was teaching in a projects class and he was getting to a philosophical part of it and I think he mentioned that he was going to open up by playing the Monty Python International Philosophy clip which I'm not... I suspect there's a, I suspect there's a book called The Philosophy of Monty uh, Python I, I think there is I think there is there's a whole series you've probably heard of the Pop Culture and Philosophy series and I have not, actually. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a, there a Monty Python in philosophy. I, I keep looking at it regularly and seeing, okay, is there any show that I really, really like that's going to be coming on soon so I can go and read more about it? And once you do that, you go back and you watch the show again, and oh, that that's really a whole lot different. I mean, I've got a Final Fantasy in philosophy here. I've got... Harry Potter in philosophy. I wouldn't mind getting the Big Bang Theory in philosophy. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. That's 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 right. Uh, I've been watching uh, because I've got I've got cable, uh, direct TV sort of stuff, mm-hmm. and I can pick up the rebroadcast of, of uh, Naked City. Mm-hmm. And you may notice that in the book I say there are eight million stories in the Naked City, and this has been one of them. Mm-hmm. And I think I am the one of the books. One of my books saying there are eight million. Ways to apologetics. Uh, this has been one of them. Mm. Uh, but Naked City has fresh plots that always involve three police characters. But the plots are so different 
Well, you, you have no idea what you're going to be watching when you begin on your head. Mm -hmm. We're all about New York. Mm -hmm. Well, it takes place in New York. Uh, New York, there's, there's no staging. It's all something that's going on in New York. Uh, and it is, uh, it's a nitty gritty, mm -hmm. sometimes show. Sometimes it's very something mm -hmm. other. But always it's well acted. And always it's more than it looks like. Mm -hmm. It's more than it looks like. The last show I watched, uh, a, a, a man who had had stellar character his whole life is challenged. He resists, he resists, he resists, he resists. He finally gives in and as a result murders somebody. And uh, he ends up accepting accepting the uh, results of his one, if you will, his one big failure uh, by turning himself into the police and at the same time saving a little boy who has, who has thought he was an honest man but mm. losing his whole sense mm. of life. Because this young boy's father was the one who engaged in procedures that led this teacher to commit this awful, awful sin. Mm. You know, I'm so, you know what, are, what are you going to make of that? Well, there's the guy, there's the Christ who goes to Mm -hmm. the cross, of course, this is a Christ who has actually committed the crime, uh, but it's a Christ who is, if you will, almost forced into it, and there is a sacrifice mm -hmm. for the boy. There's been someone who's told me years ago, he said, whenever you watch a movie or TV show, if you have a hero, and if you have a villain, you have the gospel in there somewhere. Somewhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the times when you dub is the times when everything ends up realistic. And there mm -hmm. are some of these naked city shows that depict a world in which nothing ultimately means anything significant at all. Mm -hmm. uh, film noir comes close to that. Uh, and then there's the code hero, the, the uh, bogey, uh, who uh, represents the man who's, who has a morality that's on his own and he sustains it against whatever else is going on. Well, that's the image of the, if you will, that's the image of the uh, the pride of pride. It ends mm. up being not a good guy, but a guy when you're finished that and you go, hey, I'd like to be that guy. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> sorry, but that's really not the way to be. Mm. Much better, in some ways, much better the win. The guy gets to get stepped on. Mm -hmm. But that's not right either. So, good and evil get screwed around with in such a way that you come away saying, that was a good story, that really told things like it, like it is, and you haven't realized you just brought into uh, an alternate worldview. Yeah, Ravi Zacharias has made that point that we uh, have three levers which apologetics and worldview thinking takes place at. Level one is the foundation, or you got your Plato, your Aristotle, or your Nietzsche. 
everyone else that's where the arguments are made. Level two is where it's illustrated, and that's in classical literature, movies, television, video games, everything else. And then level three is application with dinner table, conversation, water cooler talk, things of that level. And since most of us don't realize that we're, when we get level two, there's a level one underneath that level, and we can just imbibe that kind of thinking without even realizing it's going on. The thing that terrifies uh, parents who understand that is what's happening to their kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a we have a a wonderful, bright, intelligent uh, granddaughter who has been reading books that she really shouldn't be reading at mm-hmm. her age. You know, even Susan Harwich, Christian English, Christian author, mm-hmm. Starfish novels. That's beyond, not just, it's not beyond the intellect. Mm. It's beyond the emotional uh, sophistication and the moral mm. sophistication. So that, and, and she's having really a lot of difficulty right now. Mm. She's, uh, she doesn't go to study school. The rest of the family does. They've given her freedom. She's not out of high school yet. Mm-hmm. And and then we have those kids in our church. I'm thinking of I'm thinking of one uh, right now whose parents are deeply, profoundly engaged in Christian mind and Christian being and Christian mm-hmm. behavior. I have a very bright grandson who just told them not too long ago that he no longer believes in God. Uh, another grandson of mine went through confirmation class and said no. He's a student at the mm-hmm. Christian school. I asked him. I asked another one of the kids who went to the uh, who has a, I think, a, a, has a plus on a Christian uh, view of life. Uh, how, how Christian is the And he and my grandson say. Well, not at all. I mean, nothing in it, is, nothing in it ever requires anything Catholic or Christian to be assumed. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm uh, thinking about two different people I don't know of right now. One was a, a friend of mine. He's got uh, someone who's a cousin or a niece or something like that. He says, her worldview is entirely shaped by Disney, and he is just very, very concerned about her. I mean, about someone else who I emailed a while back after reading their book, and I told him my wife and I both have Asperger's, and she said, "Oh, my son, he's a, he's got Asperger's too. He's very bright. He just came home from college, and he's got masters, and he no longer believes in God." Yeah, I've a. Uh, seen this one coming before and it, it's a tragedy every time I hear about it because it's so much harder once they reach that point of disbelief to win them back than it is to prepare them beforehand. Yeah, well, my atheist friend, uh, I have an atheist friend who interprets my belief 
what he calls the monster god of the Bible, mm -hmm. uh, as a misfunctioning uh, subtle load. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because he thinks the mind is the brain. Mm -hmm. I'm about to sit here and design, uh, tell him, well, I've been into science too, and here's what the phonologists, uh, and here's a picture of a, of a, of a what, diagram of the brain, a real mm -hmm. diagram of the brain, according to the phonology. I believe that your problem, and I'm going to point out to one of the knots on his head that would uh, be leading him to his atheism. Uh, the, the point is that he will, he will refuse to pay any attention to what I really said and insists that he knows what I mean when I talk. And this is a scientist. This is a guy who's made some significant contributions to uh, cancer, cancer research. He worked mm -hmm. at the Argonne National Laboratory, uh, just south of, uh, of Dallas Grove. Mm -hmm. uh, major, a major place, a major role. But though what he says, Jim's brain is wired to believe these foolish things. But my brain is wired to believe what the really intelligent people believe. Those scientists who are members, the 93% of who are members of the uh, National Science Foundation. Right. <laughs> there are so many errors. There are so many errors in, in that argument. You, you can't start. Right. Hasty generalization. There's, uh, there's, a, there's a very questionable premise. Uh, you know, a whole bunch of things. That, there is the notion that uh, the truth is a matter of, uh, of uh, well, counting numbers. How mm -hmm. many scientists do this? How many scientists do that? But mm -hmm. the uh, commitment is so great, there's no change. Right. You know, when we get back to talking about the transcendence some, when we're uh, doing something in a theater somewhere, or watching something in our home, or reading a book, and we think we've heard an echo, as it were, a sensing of something transcendent. What do you recommend people do at that point when they think that they've latched onto something transcendent? That's, very, that's a very good question, because in the echoes of the voice, I talk about the ways in which these figures uh, of transcendence are understood. And they can be understood probably by every other worldview than Christianity, but there is a way to explain them. Mm. So you have to ask, well, why should the Christian explanation of these as the voice of, as the voice of Jesus be any more likely to be true than, say, Marilyn Shirley McLean's having right. a kind of an experience as she rushes down the beach and says, I'm God, and they're raising their hands and crying, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. Uh, what makes her less likely to be a, a genuine, reliable association? Or what makes Carl's, what my, my friend's interpretation, my scientific friend's interpretation, less likely to be true because he attributes everything to the operation of the machinery of our brain. 
why is that less likely to be true? Why is that not true? These are very, very good questions. Mm -hmm. And the answer I would give to that doesn't lie in experience only. It lies in the totality of what one puts together. Mm -hmm. How how much does naturalism explain? Mm -hmm. That doesn't actually explain why a thought can arise from a a particular status of of the neural equipment of the brain. And it certainly doesn't answer the question of why is there anything at all, which is addressed by theistic religions rather well, and completely a hub for naturalism. In other words, there are a lot of reasons why Christianity is true, other than the direct perception we are getting to experience when we have a single transcendence. That's why any one single approach to apologetics is inadequate. What might be is the trigger for a lot of others. Mm-hmm. Somebody who has not thought about God begins to think about God and hears somebody come and give them a, a, a proof of the existence of God, they think, oh my goodness, I didn't know there was that kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Now, they haven't got the whole thing, but they've got, they've got something. And what I would say claim about the Christian faith is that there isn't a thing in the world that is not addressed by the Christian faith. Right. Like my, my friend just hates the God he thinks I believe in. Of course, I don't believe in that God at all. Mm-hmm. But he thinks the God of the Old Testament is this monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and does not, you know, he doesn't understand, even though he was raised as a Catholic and had some early training, he has, he has put that all aside. Anything that he learned that was, shall we say, true, he's put that completely aside and abandoned it for a totally naturalistic view. The naturalistic view, which, by the way, he does not respond to my, to my analysis of naturalism as not finding a basis for the difference between good and evil. He refuses to... Uh, the, the arguments he gives back, I can refute very easily. One is that you can observe this in animals, and you can see uh, that uh, how the idea of uh, a, a moral sense can come about you know, through evolution. I'll admit that that may very well have a major factor in why it is we are what we are, and why it is we have that sense. Because mm-hmm. it doesn't explain the sense. Mm-hmm. It explains the existence of the sense, even if it does. I don't think it does that very well. Mm-hmm. But let's say it does explain why you and I have moral sensitivity. It doesn't tell you how that moral sensitivity is itself grounded. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help you to decide whether ISIS is right or Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm kind of thinking like, just because we have a sense of, say, something like hunger, for instance, that doesn't tell us whether a certain food is healthy or not, just because it fulfills that sense. And if we have a sense of morality, it doesn't tell us if something we're doing that sense is good or evil. It just tells us that we're doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea that we have, and this is, not, this is universal. I, I, I really don't think that accepting maybe any pathological cases of severe psychological damage, uh, I mean, the utterly severe, you don't have some sense. Everyone in the world has some sense of what they ought to do and what they ought not to do. Mm-hmm. And what they ought not to do, what they do, 
what I think they ought not to do, that is very deep. I would say for evil. For outside of the world, some claims of the world, buildings. Almost everybody in the world thinks that, mm -hmm. except for ISIS. But a lot of ISIS does think that, and apparently a lot of people who are not associated with ISIS find attractive something in that mm -hmm. radical uh, ideology, a radically mm -hmm. violent ideology, that entices them to leave wonderful America mm -hmm. for the, the desert. Mm -hmm. In the desert, that's where the truth. That's where the, the truth is. That's where the good life is. I think the desert fathers would probably agree with you on that one. <laughs> agree with, they'd agree with part of it, wouldn't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I can't but think of that. I think Aquinas would have said years ago that the only reason anyone does anything is that they do perceive something as a good, something that they have to decide. They could be wrong. But they're, they're perceiving something as a good. Even the criminal who's committing a crime like rape or murder, he's got some good that he perceives that he's going for, or else he wouldn't be doing it. That's right, exactly. Mm -hmm. But it looks like when you're talking about these signals of transcendence, you're saying the experience isn't self-interpreting. So what we need to do is try and find the, the worldview that best interprets the experience for us. Who have you perceived that is the, that is the other? Mm -hmm. What is the other really like beyond the immediate perception? Mm -hmm. Now, if you're looking at Jesus, well, you look about the real thing. Mm -hmm. If we don't look at Jesus, we look at what Jesus has left us. Mm -hmm. Disciples who look at Jesus, uh, here's the interesting thing, and you have to explain this. The disciples were with Jesus for a number of years. I kept getting it wrong as to what he was and who he wanted them to be. And even after the resurrection, they asked him, it, are you now going to uh, restore the kingdom? The, the, the kingdom of Israel, yeah. which fundamentalists say means what he's done in 1947, and mm -hmm. reformers say, no, no, no. But, but <laughs> the question itself, as John Stott says, there are errors that are done. <laughs> it mm -hmm. does work. Mm -hmm. uh, but they ask the wrong question. The person says, who is my neighbor? The, short, the story tells up the wrong question. Mm -hmm. The answer is not, it's not the Samaritan. The answer is, well, there's no answer to that question, mm -hmm. because what is your what you are to be the neighbor. You are the neighbor. That's not the point. You are the neighbor. And it doesn't make any difference who you are neighbor to, but you are the neighbor. Mm -hmm. And maybe it'll be a Palestinian, and maybe it will be a... Uh, a, uh, an Orthodox Jew, and maybe it will be a Muslim. But you are the neighbor. And what mm -hmm. Jesus does is select, a, a, actually, he selects a person with a worldview that is inadequate, but is doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And says, here, you like that guy. This yeah. is very difficult for uh, anyone to take. Uh, for, for the Jew to have a Palestinian be a hero of the story. For an American to have a communist be a good guy. Yeah. You know? And sometimes the communists did the communists did something good. We ought to be doing that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. if, it, you're, if you're, it's not what the communist is, it's what the communist does. It displays what he is. Mm -hmm. He is being a neighbor. We should be too. That yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, but the question so much isn't to ask who is my neighbor, but 
What kind of neighbor am I supposed to be? What kind of neighbor? Yeah. Well, the Samaritan. Yeah. He counts as being a neighbor. Now you'd be like him. I I thought it's pretty interesting that story, but in the end, when Jesus asked which one of these showed mercy, or was the neighbor, and the lawyer says, the one who showed mercy. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan, because as soon as he said you were supposed to spit on the ground immediately, he has to say, the one who showed mercy. He says, go and do likewise. That's what you teach that little sermon. Uh, you should put it in, tell a story in another way. Mm -hmm. Tell a story so that uh, uh, a member of Al-Qaeda mm -hmm. is the neighbor. Mm -hmm. Because of what the Al-Qaeda guy is not up with when she's sick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that can't be. Well, no. That's <laughs> what the Al-Qaeda guy did. I'm going to have to find that first. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine what it would be. Mm -hmm. So let's say the Al Qaeda guy is has the right religion. Mm-hmm. And he has the right behavior. Right. And the right exhibiting the right character. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus, ultimately you think, is one where all these echoes point to entirely. Uh well yeah, he, he's, he's he's not the echo, he's it. Right. Uh, he is the voice that is echoed. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Sire, it's been a fascinating time here, but unfortunately we're reaching near to the end of the program, so it's time we start wrapping things up here. Um, if someone's really like what they've heard, and I know I have, and they want to find out more, do you have a website or some way they can get in touch with you to find out more about you and your work? I think, I think the best thing for us to do would be the right thing at University Press. Okay. Get on the line, uh, IBP, IBPress.com, uh, and say, how do I get a hold of Jim Sire? Mm -hmm. uh, and they, they forward all that stuff to me, and I can decide whether I want to start talking about it. Uh, oh, let me tell you, I always do. Mm -hmm. It's just that I don't... <laughs> well, well, actually, actually, that isn't quite true. Uh, I have my... I have a uh, email address in uh, the Women of Sandhills book. Mm -hmm. But don't bother using it. I never look at that address. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so... Well, that, that's going to be cut out in future editions. Sorry? That's going to be cut out in future editions, right? <laughs> well, if there is no future edition. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Where? Yeah, I'm not going to mess around with a, mm -hmm. a book that hasn't been uh, distributed very much. Well, you could make it. You mm -hmm. could make it. Oh, that'd be awesome. Wouldn't that be? <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, with only a few minutes left, if there was one final message you'd like to pass on to the Deeper Waters audience, what would it be? Well, let it be the text of the epigraph to apologetics beyond reason drawn from the scripture. Mm -hmm. Here, look, attend. Watch, pay attention. 
have ears to hear and eyes to see. But Isaiah was given that. He was told that he should say that and say that he was going to be talking to people who didn't pay any attention to him. And Isaiah says, how long should I speak? And I asked, God tells Isaiah, until judgment comes. And then he turns to Jesus turns to the disciples and says, You are the one who have eyes to see and ears to hear. To you has been given what has not been given to anyone else. Mm-hmm. And so it is to develop ears to hear, eyes to see, and pay attention. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Sauer, it's been fascinating. You know, a couple of hours with you, and I think all of us today in the Projects community owe you a debt because you've been highly foundational in getting the ball rolling for much of modern projects today and we really appreciate it and I, I really hope you've enjoyed your time it's been a fascinating interview here and I hope we'll see you again sometime well I'd love to rejoin you it's been great for me thank you very much yeah, I'd like to remind everyone that next week we've got Graham Veer coming on we're going to be talking about his book The New Atheism A Survivor's Guide so now I'm Nick Peters and I'm signing off